Hi everybody, Michael Davis here. Welcome to Bone to Pick. And we are in for a very special treat today. Our Artist of the Month for February is one of the great French horn players of all time and one of the great French horn teachers of all time, Ms. Julie Landsman. Julie was the principal horn of the Metropolitan Opera Orchestra for 25 years. Previous to that, she held the same position in the Houston Symphony Orchestra. Uh, she has toured with many orchestras, in particular the New York Philharmonic and the Orpheus Chamber Orchestra. She is on the faculty of the Juilliard School, as well as the Bard College Conservatory of Music, and she is a frequent guest at the esteemed Curtis Institute in Philadelphia. Uh, her teachers have included James Chambers, Howard Howard, and of course the great Carmine Caruso. Uh, she has appeared on hundreds of recordings and festival appearances. Uh, to describe her as a master teacher would be an understatement. She's one of the great uh, brass pedagogues of all time, and certainly on the French horn. Her students occupy dozens of positions in, in orchestras around the world. Um, she's had a chapter in a Malcolm Gladwell book dedicated to her, the book called Blink, and we'll talk about that in a little bit. Um, I have uh, been fortunate to work with Julie on a few film sessions over the years in New York. I wish there had been many more, but uh, it's always a pleasure to get an opportunity to work with her and be around her uh, very positive energy. Uh, this kind of came about because I happened to uh, uh, watch uh, Sarah Willis Horn Hangout, in which Julie was featured, and I just thought, well, I got to got to get her for a bone to pick. So first of all, Julie, thank you so much for coming over today. I know you're ridiculously busy, so uh, thanks for taking time. I'm really looking forward to this. Thank you for having me. Uh, it's totally our pleasure. Well, let's maybe jump in and talk about your, you know, your formative years growing up. I know you were born in Brooklyn and grew up across the river here in Arsley, so maybe you can talk about what kind of drew you to the French horn uh, early on, maybe. I wanted to be in the high school band. Mm. And I had an awesome band director, Joe Greco, who lives in Somers, I believe. Okay. He's in Upper Westchester. He's still here. We get in touch with each other. And the band was renowned. It was mm. fantastic. So my mom went to speak to Joe Greco about me playing the English horn. Don't ask me why the English <laughs> horn. I just wanted to be an English horn player. Okay. And Joe said, well... As a matter of fact, we need French horn players, and um, but I need to check your daughter out. So he invited me to his office, and he checked my teeth okay. to see if I had teeth of, for a horn player, like, right. like a horse checkup. <laughs> and then he checked my ear. He plucked a few notes on the piano. He made me sing them back, and he said, go rent a French horn. My mom took me to Sam Ash in White Plains. Do you remember? Yeah, or was it Sam? Yeah, Sam Ash. Yeah, Sam yeah. Ash. And uh, we rented an old King single F French horn. Oh, wow. And I took it home, and I had no idea how to hold it. So I held it up like this with the bell up in the air. Because so I had been to one band concert where I had seen bells, okay. not realizing they were baritone horns. And I kept thinking, how do you see the conductor? If the bell is like this, but it's facing out the audience, does the horn player sit backwards? <laughs> so that's how I began the French horn. <laughs> that's fantastic. That's actually kind of logical when you think about it. For a young person, you'd be thinking, well, the bell's got to go up. You know, what, you know, kind of what did I know? I was very, very innocent, but very eager to do well at something. Mm -hmm. yeah. Well, you, you, you've clearly done that, that's for sure. Um, 
Uh, we'll talk about your teaching at Juilliard a, a little bit later, but you got uh, your, your degree at Juilliard. You, as a student, you studied there. Maybe you could talk a little bit about your memories of, of what it was like as a student uh, back in those days. Wow. I started there in 1971 mm. after going through the Ardsley school system. And just to go back from one moment to the Ardsley school system, Joe Greco was my first teacher, but he brought Howard Howard. to teach at um, the Yardsley High School. And Howard was the other first one at the Met for most of the years that I was there. So Mm -hmm. I wanted to be exactly like my teacher. (laughs) When I turned 18 and it was time for college, Howard advised me to go to Juilliard. He said that Jimmy Chambers was putting out the best students at that time in the early 70s, and that's where I should go. I really was very naive. I didn't know about styles or makes of horn or they do one thing in Chicago and another thing in New York. I just took the advice of my teacher and auditioned for Juilliard to be in Mr. Chambers' class, and lucky me. Yeah, Yeah. that's awesome. And for those who don't know, which I didn't actually until I doing a little research on this, but uh, James Chambers was the principal... Uh, horn in the New York Philharmonic, correct? For many years, only when I studied with him, he had stopped playing. Oh, okay. So I never heard him even once play a note in my oh, life. Okay. I listened to his recordings a lot mm-hmm. as an inspiration, but when I studied with him, he was the personnel manager of the New York Philharmonic and a very imperious individual. <laughs> well said. Nice. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, well, let's let's you know, kind of uh, vault into your uh, professional career. I know uh, in doing a little research, it seemed like you went up to Canada. It was kind of your first uh, Mm -hmm. professional engagements. Maybe you could talk about that time in your life, what it was like. It's always, I think, for all all of us now, you know, throughout our lives, but for young people, especially now that there's that trepidation getting out of schools, what's going to happen, what am I going to do? But clearly, you jumped right in and we're we're having success right out out of the gate. I right away took an audition for the National Ballet of Canada. There was a first horn opening, and they hired me right out of college, so I bypassed getting my master's. Mm. Even though they had offered me a a full scholarship for my master's, I had had enough of school. (laughs) Just not where I wanted to be anymore. I wanted to be out there in the world playing my horn, and I won that audition to be in the National Ballet of Canada, and toured all around uh, Canada, spent a lot of time in Toronto, mm. um, cut my teeth at, on that first horn chair in the ballet orchestra mm. for, I think it was around two years, if I'm not mistaken. And at that point, the Canadian dollar was worth a lot more than the <laughs> U.S., so I did very well. Mm. Nice, yeah. nice. And and I, I guess following that, you were moved back to New York or in doing yeah. some freelancing. I noticed you, you started with the Orpheus as you were still working with them, but you started with them quite early on in your career. I right? did. I never left New York, really, mm-hmm. I, it's until I went to Houston, which was 82. But from 75 to 82, which is when I, after graduating Juilliard, I maintained my New York residence, and my tours with, in the ballet were sporadic. So in between, I would freelance in New York. I played at that time a lot of extra horn with the New York Philharmonic, which was such a gas. Mm. So much fun. Mm. A lot of um, touring around Europe, and I played with Orpheus, the American Symphony, Broadway shows. I had Mm -hmm. many different shows at that point in time. 
and had a had a ball. Mm. Oh, that's very cool. Was Orpheus a similar structure to the way it is now? Oh, yes. Yeah. It is, but um, I am now a full-time member, I'm very proud to say. Okay. I love Orpheus. Yeah. I loved it back then as a visitor. I love it even more now as a retired first horn of the Met (laughs) and a current member of Orpheus. Yeah. Oh, that's that's terrific. Well, let's talk a little bit about Houston. I know that kind of Mm -hmm. seemed like in, in, in... Reading your bio, that was kind of the the first really big job that you you got, and obviously yes. uh, uh, seemed to set you up very well for what was to come in the future with the Met. But maybe talk a little bit about your time down in Houston and what Certainly. and how that impacted your career. I started there in '82, and the reason I went to Houston is I wanted to be a first horn player so badly. Mm. And being a freelancer in New York at a young age didn't always lead me to the first chair. And that's where I wanted to be. Mm. And I remember playing extra horn with the New York Philharmonic and their current principal horn, Phil Myers, said to me, if you want to be a first horn player, you need to leave New York and be a first horn player someplace else Mm. first. Mm. So I took his advice and I won the Houston Symphony audition. That said, I had taken many, many auditions prior to Houston That just didn't pan out. It took me a long time to figure out what it took to win an audition. By the time I took the Houston audition, I was able to win it, and I moved there for three years, which, as a New Yorker, was a shock to the system. (laughs) No doubt. (laughs) Oh, my goodness. But I learned a heck of a lot. Mm. It was a great start to a career as a first horn player, especially pre-Met days where I really needed to sit on that chair, lead a section, feel the heat, know what it's like to be on that chair, and deliver mm-hmm. with uh, consistency. Mm-hmm. Well, thanks for sharing about the audition process because I, I I personally didn't know that. I always associate you with these, you know, boom, boom, next thing, next thing. But uh, no, 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 you, no. you had, uh, like everybody, you had the, uh, those, those struggles to, to, to get to that next level. Indeed. I had a lot of failures. Mm. And the thing about failing is you pick yourself up, and if you're smart, you learn from what went wrong. So I, I learned. Mm-hmm. I was given some feedback that my level of volume and aggressiveness in auditions was a turnoff. Mm. I went in there like Godzilla the horn, <laughs> as if I was playing in an orchestra with 100 people. And I just blew them out of the water. Hmm. And this was not appreciated. (laughs) So one of the things that I teach my students now, and I do a lot of audition preparation, is don't give it all. Mm -hmm. If they want more, let them ask. Mm -hmm. And if they ask, that means they like you. But save something for the end, because playing by yourself is a whole different ball of wax than playing with 100 people, Mm -hmm. volume-wise particularly. So in Houston, the only question they had after I won was, can she play loud? I said, yes. <laughs> I, fi- I finally figured out how to do this. <laughs> and that audition was, was awesome because they actually asked me to play with the orchestra. They flew me down after hearing a preliminary in New York. And I had played for the conductor in New York. And I got to play a live round of just excerpts and then play excerpts with the orchestra, which was mm. 
It was great. Wow. Yeah. That, that's awesome. It was awesome. And so that led, and it, this is what I obviously want to talk a lot about, but your, your 25 years with the Met, did that lead directly into, you, you were in Houston and then it went directly to the position yes. of the Met? I was there for three years, and they were great. Mm-hmm. Very educational, very helpful, really good to get away from New York for a minute. My family, which all reside in New York, I just thought, you know, this is a good growth time for me. I did some touring with the Philharmonic while I was in the Houston Symphony. They let me off, and it was some of it was during the summer. So I sort of still had my finger in the pot of New York playing. And my horn teacher, Howard Howard, was still in the Met at that time. And he kept me abreast of the situations with the openings. Mm. They did have a one-year position that they gave to my colleague, Joe Anderer, And he played first horn for a year while I was in Houston. And then they held the audition. And I prepared like a fiend for that (laughs) audition. It was a very fruitful summer. I think it was the summer of 1984, which during that time there were Olympics. And Nadja Komenich won gymnastics. Well, she was one of my inspirations because I watched all of the Olympic performances and equated it to what it's like to have a 10-minute audition Mm. and how you need to be hot for those 10 minutes and what does it take to have that focus for that particular amount of very specific time. Mm. So not only did I learn from watching the Olympics, but that summer I also took some lessons from Carmine. He was in Roscoe, New York, with Lori Frink, wow, okay. where Lori had a summer home. Oh, okay. And I went to visit them while I was preparing for the Met audition. And I learned a few new Caruso exercises, specifically lips, mouthpiece, horn. I don't know if you know the Caruso exercises, but lips, mouthpiece, horn is a very potent one. And I, I hadn't learned that throughout all my years with Carmine. I'm not sure if he came to that one later in life or I just didn't learn it. But Lori Frank, a fantastic lead trumpet player, demonstrated lips, mouthpiece, horn for me. And the quality of her lip buzz blew a hole in my ear. It mm. was just ridiculous. And I thought, yeah, that's what I want to sound like. So I added to my routine and just really honed my skills and went in there and won the audition on my father's birthday. October 4th, 1984. Wow. So the celebration afterwards, as you can imagine, because this was all in New York, was a mighty celebration. Oh, that's an awesome story. Yeah. Um, it, in reading your bio, it, it seemed like you really had your eye on, on, on the Met, like in that job. You, that was, it seemed like it's destiny that you were supposed to be in that position. What, um, but with that in mind, maybe you could talk about yeah, just your favorite memories of, of being in the Met. And, and, sure. and I was also curious uh, just how you, you were there for 25 years, so I'm sure you saw ebb and flow and growth and, and all kinds of stuff in the orchestra. I'm just yeah. curious to see what your impression over that 25-year span was, was like. Well, there's a lot to say. Um, as far as the destiny piece, I'm a very goal-oriented person. And when I set my mind to something, 
I do my best to go from here to there. I don't always know what it takes to get from here to there, but I see there very clearly, mm -hmm. and that's what I want. Mm -hmm. And I wanted that job since I was 13. So it took me until I was 30. Do the math. <laughs> but I got it. I totally got it. I, I yeah. got it. And I do offer to my students and anybody listening who has, has dreams to be very clear. Mm-hmm. And go right for it. And don't let anything stop you, but work your butt off to get there. Because it's not an accident that my dream came true. I put in so much time. Mm -hmm. I know Malcolm Gladwell, who we'll speak about with Blink in a moment, has a formula in his book, Outliers, of 10,000 hours. That's an underestimation of, <laughs> of what I did, yeah. what a musician does on a daily basis. Mm -hmm. It takes a tremendous amount of focus, dedication, and hard work. And I got there. That said, once I got there, it was a little intimidating. <laughs> I had dreamt about this for 17 years. And once I walked in the door knowing I was first torn, I felt like I had shoes that were a size 14 to fit. And I'm not nearly that. <laughs> no. And down in the foot department. So I, it took me a little while to settle in. I had a section of older men who had been there a very long time and very clear about the way they wanted to do things and not necessarily that open-minded to a 30-year-old young lady <laughs> coming in with her way of doing things. So I had a lot of adjusting. It was very, very stressful, quite honestly, but I decided my best weapon was to play better than anyone they had ever heard. And that is what I did. And it took a tremendous amount of dedication and work. That's awesome. I, 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 I'm a firm believer in the law of attraction, which it sounds like you are as well. And, and uh, also uh, read a book many, many years ago, Psycho-Cybernetics by Maxwell Maltz. Oh, I know that book well. talks a lot about having, like yes. you just described, having that end result. Yep. You don't necessarily know how you're going to get there, but it's like your own yep. personal GPS. You're like... A manifestation. Doing, you know. Yeah. That's a great book, by the way. Yeah. It's really written in 1960, kind of ahead of his time, I would say, you yeah. know, uh, I'm looking at that. Um, well, you, you, you touched a little bit on Carmine Caruso, and I, and I know that you had a long association with him. I think, did you meet him in high school? And, yeah. and maybe you could talk about just your favorite memories of him. And, and, yeah. and I know that everybody should know this. Uh, Julie has put out uh, the Carmine Caruso exercises on, on uh, video, and they're free, and you can check them out. It's amazing stuff. So this is the, uh, the conduit to that great method, and we're lucky as brass players to have you doing that so that's an awesome thing but it was a labor of love mm -hmm. i loved carmine mm -hmm. and i did have the privilege of working with him since i was 13 because joe greco the band director i mentioned in artsley brought carmine in to teach our high school band How great so that? we started <laughs> our day with the band with the six notes and then we would do intervals pedal f sharp and chromatic scale as an in, in unison with the band so Carmine and I took to each other, and I became his little demo girl. <laughs> he took me around to various conventions like NISMA, up at the Concord when there was a Concord right, right. many moons ago. And it was, it was such a thrill, such a thrill. 
to demonstrate the exercises, to be around Carmine, to understand how he thought about things. His lessons were open on 46th Street in the funkiest of funkiest studios. (laughs) And you could sit in and watch him teach. He was just a very open man about education and very, very positive. I referred to him as the Mr. Rogers of, <laughs> of teachers because you would come in there, it, not I personally, but there would be people who were in really bad shape. And he would just take you from where you were and move forward. He never judged you. He never said harsh words. Makes my eyes tear up because it, for me it was like so healing mm. to have a teacher with such a beautiful, open and warm heart. So I would say not only is his method great, but the way he went about communicating to his students, the love of teaching, the love of of people, and the love of helping them improve in their lives. Hmm. That kind of leads into my next question. I I don't think I've run across a teacher whose students love them more than your students. When I talk to them, they just, to a person, I mean, they all absolutely adore you. And, and it's, and they, and and I think you're tough on them too. They talk, they'll talk about, you know, what you have to do to get to that point. But I was wondering if you could, and I think part of it, I'm sure comes from, from Carmine, but uh, your own approach to teaching, how do you, if you could kind of capsulize it, because it it really is impressive to me how, how, in addition to the success your students have had, let's for sure mention that because they're all so many of them are doing high level professional work in orchestras, um, but they they love you, you know. So it's like you you clearly have an approach that touches people and and makes this huge impact. So thank you, you thank you talk for about telling that. me that. Yeah. Well, I love what I do. I think that's really important, and I think connecting with the student that you're teaching is really important. Know who's in the room. Know know who this person is. The connection for me is the most important. And if it doesn't work, I'm willing to call it quits right away. Like, Mm. look, we're not connecting. You're not understanding what I'm saying. Or there's some kind of difference in your learning style and my teaching style. So I'm very specific. It's got to work. If it doesn't work, it's too painful for me because I love my students. Mm-hmm. And in order for that love to take place, there has to be trust and communication. That said, I am tough. Mm-hmm. I am very tough. I'm very demanding. I want it right. Am I mean? No. I mean only if they don't do their work time and time again. I'll just say, get out of here. And don't come back until you've done your work. And I've done that to a few. And whoever's watching who's had that happen to them, It's not a nice feeling. You don't want me kicking you out of the room. (laughs) I don't do it often, and it takes a lot to provoke me. What makes me happy as a teacher is when the student does their work Mm. and when I see um, progression. I'm okay if they fall and they fail because, as I mentioned before, with my many lost auditions, failing is a good moment to mm-hmm. pick yourself up and learn and grow. So I, I try to use those moments with my students where things aren't going well to help them figure out, you know, how did they get to that spot and how are we going to unravel it and put it back together and make you even stronger? Right now I'm so involved in it. I like mm-hmm. mentoring. 
I like teaching my students not only to be fabulous horn players with really great technique, which is where the Caruso fits in, mm-hmm. um, but also to be good colleagues, how to treat people that you work with, how to be on the job when you're working with somebody, because you know as well as I do, you hire people in a freelance business who you want to be around. And that's a huge piece of the puzzle. To win an audition, they might not know yet if you're a good colleague, but they'll find out in the tenure process if you're a good colleague or not. And some orchestras will respond positively or negatively if it doesn't fit. Mm -hmm. So I, I do mentoring on many, many different levels. I try to model as a great player. I tried to model as a good colleague and a kind person. Great words, and it's obviously that's so important. You know, I mean, I think we all focus on uh, I've got to increase my range, I've got to learn my excerpts, I've got to do all this stuff. But at the end of the day, you're absolutely right. If you don't enjoy sitting next to the person you're sitting next to, it's it's going to be a short run uh, for yes. for the person. You know? And I have a horn class actually that I have at Juilliard that. I try to run, and also in the summer, I teach at the Music Academy of the West in right, Santa right. Barbara. Lucky me. Yeah. Lucky <laughs> me. And I hand select the six students. And part of what I'm looking for is a community. Mm-hmm. I pick good kids who are going to support and help each other. I'm all for competition, but not if it's mean-spirited and not if it's antisocial. Yeah. I like it when there's a, a healthy system that encourages each other to grow and move forward. Yeah, that, those are great words. And, uh, you know, I, I, I kind of touched on it in the intro, but when I saw the the, uh, the horn hangout with Sarah, mm-hmm. I mean, you just get that energy, and I get the same energy off of you right now. You're putting out that positive uh, energy, and it's, it's again, kind of the law of attraction. I mean, it comes back to you, and I think your students obviously um, feel that impact, so that's a great thing. Um, You've had tremendous success, uh, obviously, as a teacher and, and, and as, as I mentioned earlier, placing these students and they've won all these auditions, which is getting, seems to me, I'm not in that world, I'm more in the commercial jazz world, but the auditions just seem to be getting harder and harder because there's yeah. more and more qualified uh, young people uh, ready to take these jobs. How do you look at the process these days? Because for me, as an, kind of an outsider, I look at, and an orchestral fan, I look at the orchestras as sounding, um, it's such a high level now. You know, the New York Philharmonic, amazing, Chicago Symphony, amazing, Boston Symphony, all incredible, filled with amazing musicians, the Met Orchestra, of course. Um, they, they seemingly, to me, are, are sounding more similar than dissimilar. And back in, when I was, you know, when I listened to the Cleveland Orchestra with George Sell or, or, or whatever it might, whatever orchestra it might be, they kind of seemed like they had their own little personality. How do you view, in terms of preparing your students for these auditions, um, how do you look at that in terms of giving them the tools to, to get the, it seems like there's more of a uh, specific sound that they're looking for, but at the same time, you want to have your personality come through, I would think, to, mm-hmm. to set yourself uh, apart from, the, from other players. So I hope that makes some sort of sense, but it like, does, you, of course. Uh, com- combining the, those two elements. Well, it's a two-part answer. What used to be and what is has changed. Mm. So I'll address both. Okay. <laughs> what used to be was very um, instrument specific 
For example, the New York Philharmonic and the Metropolitan Opera and the Cleveland Orchestra all used to play on the Con AD. The Con AD and also um, the Los Angeles Philharmonic and the San Francisco Symphony. That was the instrument of choice Mm -hmm. for many decades. And along with that, and the Philadelphia Orchestra, which also had Crispies. That was an offshoot. The Con was an offshoot of Crispies. So for many, many years, there was a very specific niche of a certain kind of um, mellow but um, orchestral openness in the sound. And that's the school I was trained in, and that's the school I just love. Mm -hmm. That's the sound that just thrills me to my core. That said, I trained four members of the Met Orchestra now, all who happen to be women, and one behind a screen, yes, appear <laughs> through the screen at the Met, That's awesome. um, to fit into the Met section at that time, mm-hmm. which was primar- primarily a Con D section and em- emulating my sound. Mm-hmm. But things have changed. As soon as I left the Met, they replaced me with someone who didn't play a Con AD. Um, as soon as Phil Myers met uh, Engelbert Schmidt, he switched from a Con AD to an Engelbert Schmidt. Well, the country is now really moving away from the Con ADs. Cleveland is still playing on Con ADs for now. They're in the process of looking for a first horn. God knows what's going to happen. <laughs> So at this time, there's a huge um, switch up with instruments and sounds of horn sections in orchestras. So I've been less demanding of what my students use as instruments. I used to only teach Con AD players, and I used to only play on a Con AD. Well, even I am uh, switching it up a little bit. In my retirement, I'm playing on a Rauch sometimes now, okay. a beautiful instrument, one of Dan Rauch's last instruments made in Oslo. For the last year, I've been experimenting, and in some ways, there's an ease to playing that instrument different than the AD. The slots for the notes are much more specific, yet it still has a beautiful sound. Hmm. The con, you can, there's a lot of wiggle room in those notes, hmm. and you can put colors and really play with the expression and the sound. But being, you know, semi-retired, I guess. <laughs> I don't know if you call this retirement. because yeah, it doesn't really sound like retirement busy. to me. <laughs> but um, I'm experimenting, let's put it that way. Okay. And I no longer demand from my students they play cons for one reason. The, co- the climate of the country and the instruments that the orchestras are looking for has changed. Mm -hmm. And I don't want to give them any impediment to winning jobs. So they can come in and play any instrument they've got. As long as it's a good horn and they have a good sound, I'm a happy teacher. Mm -hmm. Having a good sound is one of the biggest things that I demand from my students. Uh, A good sound to me is well-balanced. It has the ability to change colors and expression. Um... Can you do that on other instruments besides the con? Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I demand that they do it well with a beautiful, clean technique. And that's what wins auditions. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So things have shifted around. Does that answer your question? It absolutely does. And do you, 
just a, an extension of that, do you feel like a, an opening in, like I understand there's an opening in the New York Philharmonic coming up, I believe, one of the horn positions. Um, I'm not sure. Maybe. Or I could be wrong. I maybe, could be wrong about maybe. it. But let's just say, let's say for, for sake of argument. For, yeah, maybe, maybe there, there is an assistant opening. I think so. And would the expectation be that since Phil is there that you would be playing on a Schmidt, or is it more open than that and you can adapt if, if you're the person... I think ultimately, if you win that audition on a different instrument, you will be playing on a triple Schmidt. That seems to be historically what has happened to the newer players in his okay. section. And would you say that's the case in other orchestras around the country uh, to some level? Or? Yes. I would say if you win the Cleveland audition and the conductor allows the section to call the shots. Hmm. In Cleveland, the conductor's got the power, so it's a bit of a wild card right now. Hmm. But if it's up to the section, they would want the principal to play on a con. We'll see. Mm-hmm. That's that's yet to be seen. Mm-hmm. That must be uh, an interesting dynamic when you, whether the conductor has the power or the section has more influence. Or yeah, I'm sure it's on a case by case basis. It is. It is, and. I believe in San Francisco they're very particular. I think the last I heard they only wanted Berghorns there. Mm. Um, if you wanted audition for the San Francisco Opera, where my student's the principal horn, you've got to have an 8D. Mm. There's no question. If you want to audition for the Washington National Opera, where my student's the first horn, you've got to have an 8D. Mm-hmm. These are the kids that I taught when 8D was it, That's and it. they are holding down the fort, thank God, and I love them dearly for it, and they're very particular. That's that's what they want in their section, and they can call the shots. Awesome. Well, you you touched on uh, now the Met section has four women, and you are certainly a pioneer, uh, and, and, and what a pioneer you've been in, in, in the uh, women in brass movement, if you want to refer to it as that yourself, Susan Slaughter, Barbara Butler, many uh, great, great players who, who have helped open the market for women. And it's uh, we all applaud you for, 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 for you. doing that. Um, how do you feel as, as, a, as a true pioneer and, and accomplished that? And as you, you touched on it, being the 30-year-old woman who's with older guys in the, in the Met section, I'm sure, you, I'm sure you had your days where you had stuff to deal with. But <laughs> how, do you, yeah. uh, how do you feel now? Like, are you, are you happy with where things are at? Certainly everything's improved. I see major orchestras around the, and not just for French horn, but trombone, ladies playing the trombone Indeed. in sections, Indeed. trumpet. It's really much, much healthier than it's ever been. How, yeah. Do you feel good about where things are at? Is there still room for improvement? Is uh, Where do you feel things are at? I'm optimistic. I choose optimism. <laughs> I also love the screen. Mm-hmm. And I can tell you one thing for sure. If that screen hadn't been there when I won my Met audition, things might have turned out differently. Mm-hmm. And not based on the quality of my playing, yeah. but based on their preconceived notions. So I'm so grateful for that screen. Mm-hmm. And we could segue from that into Malcolm Gladwell's book. Just thinking Blake. that, yeah. I perfect. read your mind. <laughs> because that last You're chapter... You're making this very easy for me. Thank you. Thank <laughs> you. Likewise. Likewise. Um, the last chapter of Blink is about uh, making decisions without seeing, about quick, he calls it thin slicing. Mm -hmm. And that's what I do when I teach, by the way. 
I know within the first five minutes what I'm going to work on with the kid, even if it's for the next four years. Mm. I get it. Okay. I don't know how, where I get this from. But thin slicing with a screen is very different than thin slicing with your eyeballs. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of prejudice that you can have about someone's look, someone's instrument, someone's sex, someone's height, someone's weight, someone's clothing. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of prejudice you can have or someone's embouchure. And I am so grateful that that screen was there for my audition until the bitter end, until I walked out from behind the screen as the winner. Yeah. Well, so the entire audition was behind the screen. Every round. And I did three rounds, I believe. Okay. And I, I took a video in my mind's eye of the final round when I walked out from behind the screen and was announced as the winner. There were gasps. The committee was like flabbergasted. Wow. Maybe two people back there knew it was me. My teacher, I believe, recognized my playing. And there may have been one or two other people, I'm not certain, that might have known, even with the screen there, that I was back there, based on past knowledge of my playing. Mm-hmm. But none of them expected a woman. They all figured it was somebody else. They had two or three guys in mind. And they walked to the back of the room. They were in such shock that only two or three of them came forward to shake my hand. These guys flipped out. Wow. And I, I still can see it in my mind's eye. Wow. And I, took, and I wrote their names down, believe me. I was <laughs> very aware <laughs> of who came to say hi and who walked to the back of that room. And at that point, there was no turning. They, you, you won the job. I you were won, in. baby, and there was no taking it back. And I, I was going to go in there and show them they made the right choice. Yeah, well, clearly, yeah. no question you did that yeah. for 25 years. Running. I did. Was, it, was, it was a lot of, um, I don't want to use the word effort because that has a negative connotation, but it, was, it took a lot of intention and a lot of dedication to do those 25 years. But I want to go back to Blink because the story about how that Please, came yeah. back about is so funny. Yeah. I was at home one day and my phone rang. And on the other end, I hear, hi, this is Malcolm Gladwell. I write for The New Yorker. Can I ask you some questions about your Met audition? And I had never heard of Malcolm Gladwell. But I knew of The New Yorker. I thought that was a great magazine. I'd grown up around The New Yorker, and it's sort of a high-end intellectual magazine. I thought, oh, great. Yeah, (laughs) he wants to write something about me in The New Yorker? I'll talk to him. So he asked me a lot of questions about my audition. I don't remember the questions, but if you read the the last chapter, you'll hear what the questions were. And we talked for about 30 minutes. And at the end of the interview, I said, so... When's the article coming out? He said, there is no article. And I said, what? He did not at that point say, I'm writing a book and you're going to be featured in my book. Hmm. I just was really upset. I was actually kind of pissed off. (laughs) And I vowed after that to not answer any anonymous calls asking for (laughs) interviews because who knows what he's going to do with this. Fast forward two years. My nephew Jordan calls me up. And Jordan, by the way, just designed my new website, which is going to be released momentarily. Awesome. Yeah. So Jordan calls me up. He says, Aunt Julie, I'm sitting here in the bathroom reading a book. <laughs> <laughs> and do you know that you are the last chapter of a national bestseller? 
said, I had no idea. And so he, he reads to me what it says. I said, oh, my God, that was the interview. That's the guy. Wow. I know. Oh, that's unbelievable. It's crazy. It's crazy. Oh, that's great. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm a big Malcolm Gladwell fan, and, and all his, and you mentioned Outliers is such a great book, but I, yeah. I remember reading that chapter just thinking, wow, how cool is this that he... Uh, it, it's way cool, way cool, and I like to have bragging rights about it. Too. Uh, you deserve the most <laughs> bragging rights, to say the least. Um, and it's very cool not to not to belabor the uh, audition thing for for ladies, but I, I I can only assume, like we mentioned, Sarah Wills, for her to get in the Berlin Philharmonic. Okay. I mean, you're the fact that you won that position in the Met really has an impact for for generations, and clearly it has. But but. That's a good thing, you know, Beautiful. a person like that who deserves that position and, and in, a, in a probably even a more male-dominated uh, orchestra than the Met, perhaps, at that mm. time. She's but, amazing. Yeah. She's, she's a force of nature on so many levels. Mm -hmm. Her media connections, she's a right. TV show. Do you know this? I, you know, I just, when I watched that, the Horn Hangout, I became uh, a fan. And so I just did a little, went to her site and checked out the stuff. It's really she's inspiring. She's quite something. Yeah, I'll, I'll be no seeing question. some of her this summer. I believe she's coming to the Music Academy oh, to nice. do a little feature on us. And last summer, I saw her at the International Horn Workshop in L.A. Okay. And she interviewed a bunch of first horn players, mm. which was so fun. <laughs> I got to sit up there with one of my former students, Jen Montone, who's first horn in the Philly Orchestra, and we were part of the panel. Tim Jones from the London Symphony, principal horn, Stefan Dorr, principal horn of the Berlin Phil, and Andrew Bain, principal horn of L.A., were all interviewed um, as first horn players by Sarah for the IHS um, workshop. Which was wow, fun. that sounds oh, great. It was so fun. Yeah, I'd love to see that. That's, that's I think it might be available. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, I wanted to, as we kind of wind down a little bit here, I wanted to take a second for you to maybe just talk about some of your, your favorite conductors that you've had the opportunity mm. to work with, and maybe even favorite um, musicians. I, I know I wanted to ask you about Jerry Ashby, who is a missed uh, every yeah. day, and I, I had the wonderful opportunity to work with Jerry uh, quite a bit. and. What, a, what an amazing guy. But I certainly wanted to ask about James Levine. Um, obviously, you have this incredible past and history with him. But uh, also, any other, you know, conductors that you just, that really inspired you throughout your career? Sure. Well, there's several things to say. When you say Jerome, you see my eyes tear up. Mm -hmm. I loved him. He was mm -hmm. my roommate in college. Oh, is that right? Wow. Yeah, we oh, were very, nice. very close. I'm the godmother to one of his children. Mm. I played at her wedding recently. Oh, wow. And stay close with the family. Mm -hmm. I, I do my best to support them in any way that I can. I loved him so much, mm -hmm. as, yeah, as everybody yeah. did. Yeah. Jerome had so uh, thousands of best friends. I'd like to say <laughs> I was one of them, but yeah. he had a, you know, line, a line of them. When he was sick in the hospital, there were lines out the door to his room for people to just like wait Mm -hmm. to pay homage. I miss him. Yeah. Juilliard misses him. Aspen misses him. The, the Philharmonic misses him. His family. Oh, my God. What a devastation. He was 52 yeah. years old. Yeah. So, yeah. That's Jerome. I also inherited two of his students. He willed me two of his <laughs> students. One of them is featured in the Caruso videos, Alex Keenly. Okay. And Alex and I are very close because our, our bonding moment was over Jerome's passing. Yeah, yeah. 
very, very intense time. It was eight years ago, mm-hmm. December 26th. So Christmas has always a mixed feel to it. Yeah. Um, but moving, moving away from the tears, which mm-hmm. I'll wipe away, um, my association with James Levine for 25 years shaped so much of my musical world. His sense of sound, his concept of how the orchestra blended and accompanied the singers has had a huge impact on my ideas about tone. Yes, I like a lush, beautiful, warm sound, but the word lean and focus comes to mind also, that there's always a center that you move from and can blend with others by the sensibility of listening to others, not just yourself, not just what am I doing and putting my sound out there, but how does it fit in with the totality? And learning that accompanying Pavarotti, Mm -hmm. Kathy Battle in her day, Deborah Voigt, Hildegard Behrens, um, Jesse Norman, (laughs) Bryn Terfel, Dawn Upshaw, all of my heroes... Renee Fleming was there for her debut. These people shaped my my musical sensibilities. They gave me what beauty is. Mm-hmm. They taught it to me. And Levine was the mastermind behind it all. So I'm forever grateful. Mm. Well, that's well said on, on so many levels. Yeah, I mean, and I, I think, too, in your playing, uh, you, you just said it, but you're, the influence that the singers have on the way you approach playing uh, the French horn, it's really, that's a lot of where it comes from. And if we can get to that point as brass players and realize we're, we're, we have to sing, you know. Uh, yeah, it's, and get it's so away important. from the chops and the mechanics right. and be free to play the music. And that's where the Caruso fits in because I, I work with the Caruso on the chops and the mechanics so that when you play the music, you're free. That was his whole point. Mm-hmm. Set the chops free by doing the work away from the music, so that when you go to the music, it's there. Right. Yeah, perfect approach for sure. Well, as uh, we talk about the future a little bit, you mentioned your new website, which is is it JulieLandsman.com? It is. All right. So we got to look for that in the next. Uh, by the time this is out, you'll probably be up and running. Uh, I hope so. And let me just mention some, a few things about this new website yeah. that excite me. Besides the beautiful photos that my other nephew, Owen, took, um, my nephew, Jordan, has downloaded many live recordings of me. Because, honestly, there's very little out there besides my recordings with the Met and one um, or two other recordings with me featured in chamber music. There's not a whole lot. I never made a solo album. Okay. um, But I played a, a lot. So I have put a lot of my live recordings and some clips from some Met recordings and various things on my website so that my students can hear what I sounded like when I was at my height. Uh Yeah, I'm very excited about that part of my website. Also, there's going to be a bunch of interviews. I think I'll put this on there. We'd love to be on that. That'd be awesome. You you will be there. And lots of... um, Articles written about me. There's one in the from local 802 and a few other things over the over the decades that will be on my website. And Very cool. Yeah. Well, we'll look forward to seeing that. JulieLandsman.com. That'll be uh, outstanding. And as far as your, I'm sure your 
full steam ahead with uh, all the great work you're doing teaching-wise. And Yeah, and actually the Caruso videos will be on there, and they're also free on YouTube mm-hmm. and on the International Horn Society website. There's 12 lessons mm. with print-out PDFs, but please follow the instructions. Do you hear me? <laughs> Here's me being strict. If you don't listen to what I say, you will get hurt. I get these calls of people who are, like, doing five times more than what I recommend. It's like, what does it take to talk sense to you? If to call me injured because you didn't listen, that's not okay. (laughs) Um, But as far as the future goes, I'm doing a lot of um, traveling these days to play, to do workshops with Caruso. I'm part of horn workshops. I'm going to Oklahoma for the Southeast Horn Workshop, going down to Orlando for this Florida workshop. I don't tons of stuff. <laughs> Busy girl. And Retirement like suiting you quite well, I could well, say, right? <laughs> you know what? I'm happy. I'm very happy. And that's the most important thing. Yeah, for sure. I always like to end our interviews. Uh, it's, it's, it's certainly, it's for all of us, you know, at any age. But, you know, certainly young people, they look up to you so much. And uh, um, if you had, if you could break it down to maybe just one piece of advice that you have for for the young French horn player who wants to be the next Julie Landsman or or the trumpet player who wants to be you, whatever instrument they might be playing, um, what would that piece of advice be? I would say that you need the right teacher. You need to have a teacher that fits you. And if you don't have the right teacher, find the right teacher. Mm. But there's a second piece, which is you've got to work really hard hard, which I said before. Mm-hmm. It doesn't just happen. Mm-hmm. It doesn't happen just because you want it to happen. What it <laughs> takes to be a success is talent, drive, great instruction, and fabulous opportunity. Mm-hmm. Those put together equal success. But if you have just talent and don't have the drive, where are you going? Mm-hmm. And I've had some of those, and they, it's painful. To see amazing talent that doesn't have that forward push, mm, it hurts. Yeah, those four, that's, that pretty much sums it up, was, uh, yeah. those four components for sure. Well, Julie, I want to thank you again for coming today and uh, being on Bone to Pick. It's what a delight. I just loved every minute of it. It's been been great. My so pleasure. Thanks for coming. And uh, thank you all for checking us out on Bone to Pick. Make sure to look up julielandsman.com. It'll be up very shortly. And uh, We will see you all next time on Bone to Pick.